Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. So it's been a little bit since we put an episode out. This is going to be kind of a one-off here, but we'll be getting back to regular episodes very soon. Um, my guest this week is Aaron Cantor from Primal Practice, um, but actually I'm kind of his guest. He wanted to switch the roles up with me and interview me after he came to our most uh, recent Return to the Source seminar. So that's what's going to be happening. Before we get to a couple things that we should talk about, one is we are in the middle of our beta debut for the online courses that we've been developing. It's going really well. We're getting amazing feedback from the students, and we will be debuting this online course uh, more generally coming up in October. So if you're interested in having online support for a natural parkour practice, um, this is going to be the course to look into and you know keep your eyes peeled for that. You can definitely subscribe to our newsletter to make sure that you're one of the first to be aware of it. Um, in addition, like I said, Aaron just interviewed me at Return to the Source. That was our seventh annual Return to the Source. It was an incredible event by all accounts from the staff, from the students, from people who've been there for four years in a row. It was the best event that we'd ever put on. And I really think it was actually the debut of what you might call Evolve Move Play 4.0. And I'll probably kind of break down what that is in another episode. Um, but basically it has to do with really refining the scope of a set of practices, right? What is the set of practices that best allows us to optimize the connections that we're looking for and that quest for meaning that we talk about? And then, then there's what is the way that we can practice that so that we can get better at the practices most effectively. And here's where we're looking into you know, the stuff around ecological dynamics that you may have heard me discussing with, uh, with some of the guests. And then, the last part is how do we generalize those skills most effectively to the rest of our life? And this is something that we learned a lot recently from working with Mark Walsh, who's been on the podcast. So this is this kind of coming together of how we describe all these things and really clarifying the why, the what, and the how of Evolve Move Play um, was really powerful. And um, it was just an amazing event. I'm really excited about it, and I'm really looking forward to what's coming up next, which is our autumn retreat. So if you're not aware, we're going to be teaching a four-day seminar similar to Return to the Source, October 3rd through the 6th. We still have just a handful of tickets left for this if you're really keen on it. If you've seen John Verveke on the podcast, he's uh, one of our most popular guests. He's actually going to be a guest there, which is extremely exciting, and that ability to have these dialogues around how we recognize what is relevant how we cultivate wisdom and how we develop the right ecologies of practice. It's going to be an incredible opportunity. So really excited about that. Um, you know, follow the link down below to make sure that you get involved in the October retreat. 
as soon as you can um, because those tickets are likely to disappear really soon. We're cutting off sales uh, September 13th. So that's something to know. Um, so yeah, that that's the news of what's going on with Evolve Move Play. Um, again, you know, you can always support us uh, via Patreon. Make sure you subscribe to the newsletter, like, share, uh, subscribe, all that stuff. Without further ado, though, um, it's Rafe Kelly getting interviewed by Aaron Cantor on the Evolve Move Play podcast. Enjoy. <laughs> well, one of the thoughts I had is we could just talk about Return to the Source. We just yeah, finished absolutely. this amazing experience. I was blown away by it. And um, I thought it would be cool to flip things around a little bit. I, I know in yeah. a lot of your podcasts, you're all constantly asking questions and it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I would love to ask you questions and just like kind of hear you talk and have a uh, sure a place to kind of showcase the very very deep kind of cohesive thinking that you've done about yeah movement and that's life. Cool. So that's the plan. Awesome. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so how'd you feel about this return to source? Felt really good. Yeah, I mean it was every year we feel like it's kind of the best that we've done, and once again I uh, felt like the best event we've put on really the, the logistics were really smooth and that's something that's you know that's not my biggest strength my strength is in the material and so yeah, yeah. The, the younger coaches who we've got coming up uh really took on that role and made it run super smoothly and kind of the emotional depth went to a new place as well which was really fun yeah i was very surprised and, and very happy about that yeah. you know about the the amount of like deep stuff that was coming up and people were processing and being held and supported. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like the, um, it happened in a very organic way. Yeah. You know, yeah. people just stepped up to help, help other people deal with what was coming up. Yeah. It was quite wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was interested in kind of thinking about why that had worked out that way. It's, it's something that I guess as the seminars have gotten longer, the, the group dynamic thing has become a more, more powerful element of the seminar. So you can't put people together doing really intense physical stuff for a week and not have a lot of bonding. And then that intimacy that people have is something they're missing in their lives and that level of support and communication. And so it just sort of automatically allows them the space to sort of open themselves up more. Um, but I think in particular this year, um, we took some technology that I had learned from my friend Mark Walsh um, mm -hmm. on basically having people process their insights from drills that we were doing through the dialoguing, through meeting up one-on-one. -on -one. And, yep. you know, in the past I'd sort of, you know, I started with just having people train and then I would kind of give them my take on it. Yeah. And then I realized that you really want them to sort of articulate it for themselves. Yeah. But when I started doing that, it's in a group. And so there's, there's a couple of problems with that. One is you got to ask the right questions. If you ask too broad of a question, then the, um, it's hard for people to generate something. And also there's fear, right? So, so yeah. usually the, the, the dominant voices dominate. Yeah. The assertive right. voices. Yeah. Yeah. The assertive voices, the people who they, they tend to be a bunch of men who yeah. can articulate themselves and are happy doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think breaking up into groups and having that dialogue and processing happening is awesome. Yeah. And I think as well, some of the life linking ideas and questions that uh, weren't exactly from Mark, were really inspired by how he did that. 
And I think that, that made a huge difference being able to like, just really specifically say, where is this coming on your life? Where are these patterns at? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you feel about this aspect of it? And getting those, those questions a lot tighter. Um, I think yep. it really allowed people to kind of start farming their own insights much more powerfully. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I know in my own work, I've, I've, I've found that sentence stems and good questions after an immediate experience can actually take the lesson yeah. of, of an experience and um, make it real and tangible and transferable versus I just had this experience and then it kind of dissolved into the sea of experiences that I'm constantly. Yeah. Being. Yeah. We want to be able to make these things permanent. We want to take the profoundness of an experience and sort of get it to articulate and be sort of well organized in the mind so that we can continue to use it. And there is something too, as a teacher, I know I've, I've struggled with um, allowing people in my classes to articulate things, maybe not as well as I think I'm articulating them, but allowing them to come up with the insights versus giving them the insight. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's a tough thing to do, but when we can do that, it really creates a space where people feel like they're actually what they said is theirs versus they're not quoting Rafe anymore. They're, yeah. This insight is mine. Yeah. A question I was asking myself a lot during the seminar is have I said en- enough? Mm. Do I need to say more or I do, do I just need to leave space for other people to say? Yeah, yeah. And also if someone was sort of partway to saying it the way that I would say it, did it really need to be, to be, that final polish that I would have given it or was it better for them to, to have their, their, their piece and sort of work on it. Right. Even if it's rough, rough hued and like, yeah. whatever it's theirs. Yeah. yeah. And so that was a, uh, that was a really interesting thing. And um, I found that I compared to previous years, I did substantially less lecturing mm-hmm. and just a lot less kind of talking on my own, a lot more listening. Um, and it was really interesting to see how, like, I'm not 100% sure exactly what people took away from this wow. because because a lot of it happened kind of invisibly to me. It was in the dialogues in between people. Right. But uh, but what I could see was the, the level of depth that they were receiving and the openness and some of the movement that came out towards the end of the seminar as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, one of the big realizations I've had kind of recently is just how deep the emotional regulation layer is actually how, how relevant it is to movement competence. Absolutely. It's like we start playing with these mindfulness ideas and we're trying to transfer from a movement practice into our life. Um, and someone who's just interested in the movement, they might be saying, Oh, like, you know, I just want to be able to do cool stuff better. Mm-hmm. But if you can be, if you can regulate yourself in a place of confidence and happiness and joy and flow, you're going to be so much better able to try out the skills. Yeah. So often what holds you back from a skill isn't anything technical or physical. It's psychological and emotional. Totally. And so when we get better at that, um, it has this, this enormous impact. And so I think that's what we saw, you know, what we have been seeing over the last few years, but especially this year towards the end of the seminar, we saw people have this really profound ability to kind of tap into their their own flow state and their group flow state. And then we saw just some crazy things happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the last day of the seminar was my, my best day Yeah, and I was tired and exhausted and we had this party before, you know, so I I hadn't slept and, 
but it was amazing. Like the stuff I found myself doing, it was the first time I actually felt flow. Yeah. And I think a lot of that had to do with, um, sinking into the group, opening myself up, finding my place in that group, kind of being okay with limitations. Like there was, uh, there was, there was a lot that happened that I think was non-physical. Yeah. Like physically, maybe I should have been performing less well (laughs) and you know, but you're free. I was free. A lot of people were like, God damn, Aaron, you're a fast old man. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. And I like that. Yeah, you were, yeah. You were throwing down in the woods. I was. I was. Really was. And I was super impressed by you. Because mm-hmm. um, I've seen videos. Yeah. And I've seen you do some stuff in, situa- in, in places that weren't ideal. Mm-hmm. You know, like when we were in Massachusetts, like yeah. there weren't a lot of great places for you to showcase your, yeah, your abilities. Um, but damn. <laughs> You're really good at this. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's, that's one of the things like when we've, we've talked, like I'm always impressed by the depth of your thought and yeah. how many sources you draw from and how you can articulate these, um, these many streams into like, this is yeah. why moving is meaningful. Yeah. But then to see on top of that, like, and God, like, I don't know moving in nature the way you move is so much more complex than moving in a in a predictable environment yeah. well, it's predictable to some some extent but you know the amount of slippage the amount of moss the amount of bark that can rip off the amount of um injury that can happen when you fall down into a canyon right <laughs> yeah. um yeah i was really impressed thank you yeah i mean <laughs> the way i think about it is it's it's uh there's more variables right it's like you're running on a like, you know, if we look at the jump that we did over the canyon that you just mentioned, it's like, yeah. you know, usually in a city, you just have a flat run up. It's yep. relatively simple footwork. But we're running down a slope, we're running over, like, there's little plants and stuff sticking up. And yep. there's little bumps on the slope. Yeah. Little rocks that you could trip yeah. on or rocks that if you jump off of can roll and you don't get as much power as you think. Yeah. yeah. And so getting your footwork right is so, is so tremendous challenging and you know these things it's like you can't you can't capture really what that is on video you can't you just see that you know a lot of the resolution of what's happening when you're moving in nature disappears right um so which is a challenge when we're filming it because it's like everyone has the expectations from from urban parkour like how big things are and how far you can fly um but it's it is harder to find jumps where you can fly like that in nature it's way harder yeah and to me, um, very, very rewarding. I mean, I, th- I think urban parkour yeah. is rewarding as well, but um, something about that extra variable or that extra layer of um, having to just really pay attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's one of the triggers of the flow state is a rich environment, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at other flow state sports like whitewater kayaking, surfing, snowboarding, most of them are really oriented towards nature because that's where we're going to be experiencing sort of the richest environments, the most information the nervous system has to adapt to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that really does trigger that flow state. And it's tremendous. The other thing I like about training nature is, um, you, you know, if you run across that flat surface, you're getting kind of a specific type of loading on your body. When you run across the broken terrain of nature, you're getting a much broader set of, of um, loading patterns through your body. And that's actually going to make you 
it's going to make you more adaptive, but also it's going to allow you to stay healthier because you're not overloading any specific tissues as much. Right. Yeah, it actually taps into your body's redundancy, right? Mm -hmm. There's there are many, many ways to do this that yeah. you're getting. Um, you're actually triggering all those ways. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about why. Like okay. Why do we? Why do you do what you do? Yeah. Why is there such a need, or why do you think there's such a need for um, conscious natural movement? Mm -hmm. um, physical training, positive physical interaction. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I would say that in general, as a society, we are suffering from, you know, what you might call a meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. And John Bates, one of my big influences on this, has this idea that we need to awaken from the meaning crisis. Yeah. And this is obviously something you see in the work of other thinkers like Jordan Peterson or Jordan Hall or various people. Um, and, you know, another way to look at this is that most people feel a sense of being disconnected or alienated from something in their life. Um, and just sort of naturally through parkour, I found something that gave me a sense of meaning, that gave me a sense of connection. And as I moved into training in nature, I noticed that deep sense of connection to nature, which was really valuable to me. Um, and I think that that lots of people have recognized this within within flow sports that, mm -hmm. that it affords us that um like me high chicks and holly has talked about the idea that people who are in flow states more often report the highest uh sense of well-being mm -hmm. so so that's been around for a while but i guess that when i when i kind of hit my 30s or late 20s suffered a lot of injuries and was sort of looking at like, what does the long term of this practice look like, right? Is this something that I'm going to have to be done with in a few years because my body just can't sustain it anymore? Like I know a lot of people in the parkour community now who, you know, sprained an ankle one too many times, tweaked it back one too many times. And it's just like, they just can't trust their bodies. Right. And they're, that they're was for, back to it. That was a stage of my life. When I was young, I did this. Yeah. yeah. And so I, you know, there was something about what I was getting out of my movement practice that I didn't want to have to let go of. And so I started really thinking about why, why practice this. And actually around the, not long after that, I started practicing at heights, which I'd never really done before. And I was, you know, taking risks with my life around the same time that I was having my first child. And I was like, I really had to think about what is this all about? Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, this, this um, quote I saw, from the mountaineering community. It's not what the man does to the mountain. It's mm -hmm. what the mountain does to the man. Right. And that really captured it for me. It was like, what matters to us in the long run has to be more about how our practice changes who we are as a person than what we achieve in our practice. Yep. And if you take that, then even when you reach this point where you're not going to jump a bigger jump, you know, you can still continue to harvest value from your practice, can still continue to, to challenge yourself in a unique way, still continue to grow and see new elements of the practice as you, as you age. And, and so that was kind of the beginning of that rabbit hole. And I was starting to articulate all these ideas around, um, you know, that movement practice was, was really a tool for self-cultivation. That was the ultimate purpose of it because fundamentally, most of us don't have the need to use these skills in our day-to-day -day life or they're hardly the most 
pragmatic skills yeah. to invest ourselves. It's in. wonderful to think that if there was a baby in a burning yeah. building, you could run in there, rescue it, back yeah. out of it. But like, yeah. probably better off learning coding. Right. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, save some money for yourself by learning how to yeah. be a mechanic on your own car. Totally. Uh, you know, any of those things. So, so yeah. So I, I had that that idea of okay, let's 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 orient this practice towards self-cultivation. That was around the time that I, I started picking up Jordan Peterson's work and really recognizing this idea of meaning. And, and I started to realize that what Peterson described as is sort of the heroic quest of the individual who proactively confronts the dragon. Um, and, and that's the, the archetypal person is the person who can go out into the undifferentiated chaos of potential and extract something good out of it. Right. And to me, it was like, well, that's exactly what we're doing when we're jumping. Mm-hmm. Right? When we're doing a movement practice, um, we're going out into some space that's just beyond the edge of our understanding. That's just beyond the edge of our competency. And we're somehow becoming more masterful within ourselves right. through that practice. And so, you know, the dragon is this new jump. And yeah. the gold that you get from it is the character yeah, yeah. you develop. And I mean, as you're saying that, I'm also thinking there's tyrannical order that we're combating as well. There's this tyrannical kind of like stay within the lines, read the signs and definitely don't climb up onto the roof and definitely don't jump over the alleyway. And that there's, there's a kind of um, order that you're, you're breaking. Yeah. I just thought I started thinking about this recently, actually. I, you know, we talked about this at the seminar, but there's a relatively new realization for me. I think I'm not sure, but I think I may have sort of started to think about this when I was talking to Thomas Kuti, who's one of the kind of, First or second, his second generation parkour athlete in France before okay. before the internet generation. Okay, one of the direct students of David Bell. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I was thinking about the experience of these guys who had started the parkour movement and how they they had really had traumatic upbringings. A lot of them, mm-hmm. and they were going out and finding this heroic quest that they could take on. And so, in some ways, you could see it as that confrontation with the dragon. Well, there's this other aspect of the hero, of the archetypal hero, which is the person who brings the waters of life back to the parched yeah. kingdom. Yeah, big and time. The parched kingdom is the kingdom that has become too ordered, that has become too um, tyrannical. In, in we all have to do everything the same way. Right. You know? This is how you exercise. Do it on a treadmill inside. And um, that, if you want competitiveness, it yeah. shows up in sport. You know, within the bounds of this field. Yeah. So we we live in a you know, as we walk through the city, we live in an, uh, an environment that has been ordered for us very, very carefully in a lot of ways. And, uh, and we've stripped away a tremendous amount of chaos and potential in the environment. Um, and so, you know, one of the really interesting things about parkour is like all, all kids will climb trees and jump and vault around in the natural environment. But a lot of times it seems like they don't see the, their urban environment in the same way. So parkour was like this radical reimagining of the city as being available for play yep. in the same way that we all inherently as children can interact with nature. Right. Um, and so that to me is like the bringing the waters of life back into the parks kingdom, the kingdom of the yeah. city was renewed um, through the imagining of the yeah. landscape. Yeah. And we could say this, you know, skateboarders had already done that. And, you know, it's, it's not unique to the parkour community, but it was a really beautiful example of that same yeah. kind of archetype. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that something born in the city, something born in the Parched Kingdom can yeah. also 
come back to nature yeah. and bring life back to nature. Because one of the things I think we're all suffering from is a sense of alienation from our natural environment. Absolutely. And without touching it, without actually interacting with moss and grass and rocks and rivers, they're just pretty things that are very abstract, you know. Yeah. To actually play in nature gives us a love of nature and a relationship to it that I think is very, very important. Yeah. This is a like um this is a thought that's been inspired for me recently by uh, John Bravaki. You mm-hmm. know, we've been talking about this idea that you know, I, I guess I've thought about this conceptualized this as my connection to nature is more alive than someone who maybe just looks at nature, just walks through nature. Right. Um, and that's kind of an implicit way of describing it. Um, last year, one of our students said that having come to one of my seminars was like having been to a beach to walk and then getting to go surfing for the first time right. and how all these layers of meaning were, were unlocked. And, uh, recently, um, Vivek, has been describing this in a really beautiful way where he talks about this, this process of realization, making something real. So as you interact with something, it actually becomes more real to you because you experience more of the layers of what it is. Yeah, yeah. Things are actually incredibly complex. So you can look at a tree and you can think, ah, it's a tree, right? Or you, you, know, you can start climbing in the tree and you realize all of the unique spaces available to your body in that tree and you realize the texture. You know, what is it like to to have the perspective of the tree, not of the person looking at it from outside the tree, yeah. but the perspective of somebody who's, who is inside the tree, relying on this tree to keep them alive, yeah, yeah. to have the participation, uh, participatory knowledge of, of what it is like to continually move with that tree. Yep. Um, yeah. And that's that. And, and you know, the, the, the central idea there is that once I had that, that's a relationship, right? It's, it's like, Falling in love between two people is like the process of, of reciprocally realizing each other, like making each other real, mm-hmm. exploring the facets, revealing all these things to each other. And so when I'm engaging with nature in that way, truly realizing it, truly revealing myself through the process of engaging with it, and also real, making it real to me, I, I fall in love with nature. Nature becomes so much more meaningful. The connection yeah. is so much deeper. And I think that, We've, we've made a mistake with our environmentalist movement where we've, we've viewed humans as so basically cancerous. Yeah. Cancerous. The best thing you can do with nature is kill yourself. Yeah. Essentially. Um, don't have babies and yeah. yeah. Don't have babies and die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so we, 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 we desperately want to create stewards for nature, mm-hmm. but we tell people, you know, they can't ever walk off the path. They right. can't ever engage with it. They can't ever, be part of it yeah and i think that it's very hard to get people to be deeply motivated about something like that right you know if you're you know imagine that you know how motivated are you going to be to to uh to sort of give charity to a child who you see a picture of versus one who you see in church every week right and to that point it's interesting that a lot of the money that comes for conservation efforts come from hunters. Yep. I think 90% of it comes from hunters, right? Yep. People who are actually in there mm-hmm. um, love it yeah. want to preserve it. Yeah, surfers um, are very, very, you know, they're like surfers get mad when you mess up their spots. Right, right. 
Right. And they will advocate, they will fight real hard about, you know, an oil refinery going in there is yeah, yeah, yeah. important or something like that. So, yeah. so yeah, if we want people who care deeply about the trees, maybe let them climb a tree every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Encourage it. Absolutely. Yeah. So meaning crisis, it's one of the reasons yeah. you do what you do. Um, the how is really encouraging people to get in there. And there's a few other practices that you're kind of pulling together as well. And I mean, the way I've been thinking of involved move play, I don't know how you think of it, but I think of it almost as a school rather than a system. Um, because a school can hold many different opinions mm -hmm. and many different practices and yet be a cohesive entity. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting distinction. I mean, a system in some way kind of ties into this idea that, you know, you're, there's a something highly specific and logical right. and ordered, um, which there is elements of, but there's also this necessity for, for openness. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, I've seen happen a lot within the fitness industry is this tendency for, for the kind of the sacralization of the founder of something. Right. And then their thoughts are, are sort of permanently etched and, you know, everyone has to just sort of read from the book of, of whomever yeah. it is. Whereas the way I like to think about it, all move play is a set of ideas that I've had the privilege to help give birth to. Mm -hmm. um, but that I could, that my own mind is never going to be sufficient to fully um, serve. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is to create a community of people who, who have, accept the central ideas and then can explore them mm -hmm. and network them between each other so that we can all grow together. So, yeah. Yes, a school. That's a good way of it. Yeah, I, I really, I really like it. It makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the things that's, I, I think of this idea of being aligned beyond agreement. Mm -hmm. You know, having a, a destination and not knowing exactly what the best way to get there is, but being willing to try and being willing to see other people trying and learning from that. Mm -hmm. um, I really like how you're bringing in a lot of the, the somatic practices as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so just to kind of go back for a second, we to, to, to connect some somatics. Yeah. Um, so we talked about the why, right? We said essentially it's this quest for meaning, which we can also look at as character development or self-transcendent practices. Um, and then our, our little kind of niche within that, because there's lots of ways that you can achieve that, yeah. is... In that connection between body, mind, and environment, right? Um, and then, you know, our our how we get there, uh, so we can look at it as kind of the benefits that people get out of the practice, which is like a reconnection to the self and play, and a reconnection to their bodies and to nature, and to a sense of tribal connection, yeah, to others for sure. And then, kind of the the how the the the, the specific features that we use, or the specific methods that we use are mindfulness practices, meditation, contemplation, what I call body practices, which are how we take care of the body, right. you know, learning to make sure all the joints function well and the whole system communicates and you have enough strength. Yep. Nancy Stark Smith is a beautiful uh, improvisational dancer, talks about solo practices. Yep. There's solo practices and partner practices. Yep. And I think these are just caring for self. Yes. Caring for the self. Right. And then, uh, and, and it's interesting because you can almost sort of 
there's almost a space in between those that you can look at as like somatics or embodiment. Mm -hmm. I think embodiment and somatics generally lives in this space between mindfulness and body. Yep. It's like we could look at the body as object and do something like bodybuilding. Right. And that can be very beneficial to totally. us, right? We can we can gain a lot from a practice like that, but it's treating the body as an object, right? And we can do mindfulness practices like concentration practice that are very disembodied. They take us out of the body. Totally. Um, but then we have practices that bring the, the, the mind into the body and make the way that we experience the body um, more aware yep. and more capable of being regulated. And so that's that's an area of my work that I think, so Mark Walsh, who I mentioned earlier, he's kind of one of the big leaders in the body community and he's a good friend of mine. So we talk a lot about this stuff. And, you know, he would say that that, that stuff was very implicit in my work before mm -hmm. I ever encountered the world totally. of embodiment, but I've gained a lot of understanding through interacting with that community now. Yeah. And I really like, you know, Mark's sort of thing of, you know, you're looking at how do you become aware of your psycho-emotional states? Yeah. How do you learn to regulate them? How do you do that in your own person? And then how do you do that in relationship to the broader social environment? And then you could look at any movement practice and sort of ask, how do we get the benefits of it out into that broader, broader sphere, the relational and social aspect? So that's kind of the, the embodiment piece, the somatics piece. And then we look at kind of body and environment practices. Or maybe we could look at the embodiment in some senses, sort of overlying all of these. Yeah, it seems to hold all of it. I, yeah. I always thought of embodiment are articulated as being and becoming. Yeah. You know, there's the being side, which is just tuning into what's happening right yeah. now and becoming like, who, what do I want to actually yes. embody? What skills would I like to have? And how do I get from here to there? Yeah. Um, without losing the, the, the reality of like, this is actually where I am and I have to be okay with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked about that. So it seems like, yeah. When I interviewed you and I, that was the first time I'd, I'd heard, kind of seen the language used that way. And I just immediately worked very well for what we were talking about. But uh, but I think it's such an interesting balance because I see practices like some somatic practices like Sister Christ or right. Tai Chi Chuan. And I think that they can fall into this trap of internal um, recursion or you yeah, it's, it's a self-referential vortex yeah. where you get better at it to get better at it to get better at it i mean that was why i pulled out of yoga yeah. because yoga made me better at yoga at a certain point yeah and it didn't really translate into anything else yeah and i mean we, people talk about uh about meditation mm -hmm. as a sort of panacea right um, but i think that on all of these paths that any path that's sort of singular especially has a set of traps. Yep. And so the trap of the, of the, the internal practices to me is, be, is becoming so focused on the internal experience that you're not cultivating your agency to actually go out in the world and become something else. Actually change your environment. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side is you can go in the external environment and, and you know, to me, you know, internal is because being right. And external focus is becoming. Yeah. And if you're, you're, if you're focused on that, that external thing, the goal is always on the horizon, yeah. which is very motivating and very good for long-term kind of well-being to a certain degree. But it can be exhausting and you can break yourself too. Exactly. You can, you can end up so focused on where you're going that you're not attuning at all into how it's impacting you now. Yeah. 
and that can actually take you out of those flow states, which are really where you're trying to get. Right. It's conducive to well-being and to actually yeah. and to development. So yeah. I'm trying to find this, you know, ecology of practices that helps kind of avoid these these negatives, right? Yeah. Right. So uh so in, in this return to source, we we did some meditation. Mm-hmm. We um we did some wonderful stuff with 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 Rob. Yeah. Um like a lot of martial art drills. Yeah. I know you've brought that in before too. Um, did great wilderness stuff with Kyle. Yeah. Um, a bunch of self-care that mm-hmm. was drawing from a bunch of sources, right? Yeah. Um, joint mobility, fighting monkey style drills. Yeah. And, um, parkour in nature, lots mm-hmm. of storytelling, yeah. time around the fire, mm-hmm. eating good food, processing emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other sources that you draw from or, or practices that you think are interesting that you would like to incorporate in future yeah. um, events? Sure. So I guess I'll go back and sort of lay out the, yeah, that, sure. whole, that whole, what the, what uh, the features of what we do are. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, um, so we have the mindfulness practices, the body practices, then body environment, which is how we interact with, with the kind of fixed external world. Yep. Um, and then you have like body and object, which is the things that you can move it around and manipulate. Yep. Sticks, uh, rocks. Sticks, rocks, yeah. So, you know, what we've been doing a lot is games with balls and sticks, right? So a lot of like learning to swing and avoid a stick or a practice ball, learning to catch and throw and juggle. Um, and then we have the, the, the body-to-body practices. And you know, and those can be cooperative them. or yeah, adversarial, right? Combative. Yeah, and so we, you know, we're. I've been doing martial arts since I was six years old, and I really love to kickbox and do MMA, and I train jujitsu, and I've, you know, I've, I've reached a pretty good level in those things. Um, certainly not a specialist, but uh, but yeah, I can hold my own pretty well uh, against most people, and. And so I'm very interested in those and the contact things kind of the way we use contact is really interesting in how that it, it creates this rapport and this ability to connect and use communication that um, is really profound, actually, from a self-cultivation perspective and from an emotional regulation perspective. Like there's a lot of the embodiment stuff we can get there in a very interesting way. Totally. Very quickly. Yeah. Give people a. Uh, a vocabulary and then they can start having conversations they've never had before making yeah. distinctions they've never made but through through touch yeah know? and people are, are desperately craving that kind of touch and, and physical intensity and complexity that comes yep. through these practices and then we kind of bridge those through games that are uh partially competitive mm-hmm. the games that are very competitive but limited so they're very safe and then over time, we can we can start freeing the limitations, the control of the athletes, and the technique of the athletes develops. Yeah. Um, and so, what we found there is that there, we we get rid of so many obstacles that people get tripped up on in the pathway to having success as a martial artist. Where so often people by playing these games, yeah, yeah, so often people get injured, get scared, get overly aggressive because they didn't get some of these building blocks in place that. You know, in a healthy culture, I believe would be developed through kind of just rough and tumble play as children, yep. but that we're not getting access to anymore. 
And so we're rebuilding that for people. So that's, you know, the body to body stuff that we do. And then the last thing I've kind of thought of is the, the element of craft, which mm-hmm. is where the physical skill meets some sort of pragmatic output. Yeah. Right. So you can build a house, carve. Yeah. Yeah. Juggling. Yeah. It's great for your general self-development. Um, but it's not a practical skill unless you become a professional juggler, which is most of us aren't going to go there. On the other hand, um, being able to do some basic construction will will save you a lot of money in your life. Right. So, so there's you know um, so there's this huge set of skills that we could could participate in that that or that we could pull from. Mm-hmm. Right. So can you break that down again? Do you have yeah. So it's basically you can view it as kind of like increasing layers but it's it's basically starts with mindfulness then there's body practices and there's body environment practices body to body practices and then or sorry body to object practices body to body practices and then crafts and so we have the craft of wilderness skill which is what we share in in our workshops on top of these other things but something like cooking something like another craft painting sculpting Singing, yeah, we did a lot of singing, a lot of music, that's true, which is really cool. That's fun. So, we have um, that's kind of the the overarching stuff. And you know, with the mindfulness right now, we're using a constant combination of concentration meditations, um, uh, which come from the yogic tradition, as far as I understand it. I learned them from Simon Thacker, not from direct yogic experience, yeah, yeah, um, and then body scans. And then meta meditation or loving kindness meditations. Yeah, and I think you can find concentration practices, body scans, in yeah. many different traditions, from shamanic traditions to like yogic, Buddhist, tantric, yeah. Taoist, Kashmir Shaivism. Yeah. yeah. So I'm 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 also really interested in studying some of the kind of internal alchemy stuff from Taoism. Yeah. I'm interested in studying. I've actually used some of that a little bit, even though I'm not very knowledgeable about it. But I had a I had some serious gut issues, uh-huh. some IBS issues. Yeah. And I was able to essentially meditate on slowing down the peristalsis in my gut and dramatically decrease my symptoms. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of an internal alchemy thing. Yep. Um, and then I, I really am also interested in some of the stoic meditation. So these are like practices that. Yeah, like death. Yeah, death meditations. Death meditations yeah. and negative meditations. I did a death meditation recently with, uh, with Mark and that was very profound for me but uh you know those are things that i guess we're experimenting with that we're not yet prepared to bring to our students Um, and then with the body practices um you know we have a a lot of joint integrity stuff you know we don't teach it at workshops because there's lots of widely available stuff out there Mm -hmm. but you know i have a background studying lots of different strength and conditioning methods and we have some very specific ideas around the optimal use of strength conditioning to support natural movement practices. And we're all like, that's an area that I'm particularly diving into right now, studying. Um, and there's going to be some uh, online courses around that pretty soon too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to come out with a, a course uh, we're calling elastic strength. Nice. The idea is we, what we see with parkour athletes that so many people who come from a strength training background don't have is elasticity. Um, but springy. Yeah. We need to be springy. Um, but a lot of parkour athletes could use a little bit more specific strength work. And then the athletes who are coming to us from, from the strength training world, the fitness world, we need to get them that, that, uh, 
that elasticity and help them balance their strength profiles. And a lot of times the way their strength has been developed has not been very balanced in their body. Um, so yes, we're, that's what I say, an area we're doing research in. And then within the, the, the kind of body environment stuff. So that could, you know, we can talk about parkour there. We can talk about natural parkour. We could also look at something like gymnastics, like Florey work from Capoeira, mm -hmm. like um, track and field. Yeah, yeah. And all these could be areas that you could research. Um, myself, I, you know, there's a huge focus in the culture on movement on flat ground. And I just don't find that very interesting. Yeah. Not at this point in my my training, um, it has uses. You know, it's really nice for people. People have lots of access to flat ground. Right. It's easy for them to adopt practices that involve finding a flat space. Right. It's harder for them to sort of map what they might be doing to what I'm doing if their tree looks totally different from the trees that I'm playing. Yeah. So there is some benefit, and we do have ground flow practices in our in our online courses but we're not kind of looking to to take that to the highest level right yeah, yeah. and be the guys who are the best at teaching people you know it's, it's more like it's, it's, it serves a purpose like yeah it's and the, the context is move better body to body move better in nature yeah um and develop yourself yeah versus get as good as possible at spinning on your head and doing whatever yeah so for me most of the research the stuff that we're interested in is stuff like, you know, specific types of trees that you can move on that we haven't been able to, to go as deep into. Like how do you move between different vertical trunks really well yeah. and move quickly and powerfully and elegantly in that situation or more time on rocks and understanding kind of the dynamics of what needs to be taught in that situation. Um, but we're also, I'm, I often go back to tr sort of track and field as a source for understanding um, you know, on the, and then on the acrobatic side, we also look at capoeira and gymnastics yeah. to try to more deeply understand how we we get athletes to acquire the right skills and then be able to use them in the context that we want. Mm -hmm. Even something like team sports, something that's very interesting to me right now. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you see, uh, yeah, both my kids are deeply into soccer, loving yeah. it. And at first, I was like, "This is like a military industrial, <laughs> whatever invention," you know. But I see the, the value of it, the cooperative. Um, Yep. Yeah, so much cooperation, so much um, communication, and a tremendous amount of intelligence is developed through it as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, recently I've been, this is sort of more specific and technical, but recently I've been really interested in the understanding that's coming out of like basketball players uh -huh. in how to set up a really powerful vertical jumping yeah, you know, from a from a runner, yep. and realizing that a lot of those, a lot of the same principles actually apply to vaults and flips and parkour, mm -hmm. and like just taking bits and pieces from that. Right. Um, so yeah, so we have this really interesting sort of uh, scale that we're trying to 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 continually research at, at all these different levels that go from, you know, archetypal storytelling and the questions of meaning and problem formation and cognitive science to skill acquisition for a front flip. Yep. And, and then how to, how to connect these levels. At every, yeah. From every meta to very, very specific. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So you mentioned John Verveke, yeah. Jordan Peterson, Jordan Hall, um, who are some other people who have really influenced you in your thinking about all yeah. this? Yeah. Uh, these, these guys aren't movers. Yeah. They're, they're 
their thinkers. Yes. Jordan, also someone who I've actually just started looking into. I was just mentioning okay. someone in the in the realm of of the, of the thinking, but as far as meaning, um, you know, my big influences are uh, are, are Peterson and Verbeke. Okay. Um, but we're both in the same university. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we're gonna have Verbeke at our next workshop. Which That's is be cool. Amazing. The um, retreat. When is that? That it's... is October third through the sixth. Cool. I hope I can come. Yeah, I want to just sit yeah. by the fire with him. Yeah, it's going to see be what bad. happens. <laughs> so yeah, so um, I guess at the big level, mm-hmm. I think of this thing as the problem of complexity. Right, mm-hmm. we live in a world where there's just way more complexity than we could ever understand. Yeah, and somehow we have to navigate through that and live lives that are meaningful to us. Right. And um, I think those two thinkers have sort of articulated that as well as it has been. But I find that their themes are really resonant in the work of some other thinkers who are really very valuable in my thinking. Um, John Boyd, who's a military strategist. Okay. Um, he developed something called uh, the understanding of the UDA loop, the, you know, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. Okay. So in kind of any... And it's a loop. It's a cycle, yeah. right? You're always going through this process, okay. right? Because once you've acted, you need to uh, observe, uh, observe what's happening. Yeah. Um, and so he, he has a beautiful description of the problem of complexity because he basically points to um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, yep. the Heisenberg uh, uncertainty principle, and I believe it's the second law of entropy. I can never get the okay. straight, which is which. But, basically, but essentially all of those are like, yeah. there's always going to be an element that you don't know or an assumption yes. that is unfounded. Yeah. You have to make an assumption that has no proof. Yeah. So Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem is basically the principle that there's always axioms within any system of thought that cannot be proved proven from within the system of thought. That, um, and that I I'm pretty sure there's almost no debate about this. Right. About that. About this yeah. Heisenberg uncertainty principle is really specific to like you know you cannot observe both the position and velocity of like subatomic particles at the same time. At the same time, yeah. you can you only get to have one, but it shows you that there are things about reality that you can never understand from all a particular the perspective. Of. Yeah, um, and then and uh, the second principle of entropy is that basically information is destroyed every time that something changes form. Uh huh. That's yeah. So that's that's uh, the second law of thermodynamics is entropy. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about your plan for something, you have to recognize that the plan is is not perfectly logical because it's relying on some axioms that are are not there. Yep. That there are things that you can't observe that are or can't completely control, understand all of the elements of, and that as soon as you set it in place, parts of it are starting to break down. Oh. So you're always operating under this problem of uncertainty. Yep. Um, Nassim Taleb, who uh, Whose public persona I hate, but his books are wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he all, you know, his whole series of books is called Incerto. Okay. You know, and basically he talks a lot about this. We become anti-fragile through exposure to stress. And in order to understand anything, you have to assume the game. You have to put yourself in a position to actually um, uh, benefit or fail by doing it. Mm-hmm. So um, to me, that's very resonant with, um, with the, the heroic principle as described by Peterson. Um, all of these thinkers are, are essentially kind of getting to that. It's partor- par- yeah. participatory yeah. engagement, right? Mm-hmm. In, embodied learning versus... We can't, we can't know everything through logic and knowledge. Yeah. 
we have to have experience. We have to go out and do things. So, yeah, one of the themes just on that that we talked a lot about was um, algorithms, algorithmic thinking versus heuristics. Yeah. And the problems in mm-hmm. both of those. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really cool way to think about movement. Right? Yeah. So that's something I got directly from Verveke, um, though I'd, 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 I'd encountered a similar conceptualization um, through my friend Todd Hargrove, who talked about complex versus complicated problems okay um but the basic idea here is uh if you can within a problem you have uh how does it start you have you you have to get from your your starting state to your end state obeying a set of path path constraints mm-hmm. um if if you can understand all of the potential pathways all of the potential options then you have a well-defined problem mm-hmm. If you can't, then you have an ill-defined problem. And most movement problems are ill-defined problems. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, within cognitive, this is something that comes out of really the work of Newell and Simon. But basically, they they define that 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 problem formation, and what that generates for you is a search space for a problem solution. Right. So. If you're trying to bring your hand to your mouth, mm-hmm. you have a search space of potential ways of bringing your hand to your mouth. Right. <laughs> All these ways. Okay. Yeah. So then you have to, and somehow, you have to uh, select one from the one. Mm-hmm. The problem is that you you have the potential for what they call combinatorial explosion when there are too many too many options within the search space. Mm-hmm. So the example that Viveki gives, which is great, is chess. Okay, so when you play chess, you uh, you have thirty potential legal moves generally per uh, per turn, and you have sixty turns. So right. you have thirty to the sixty potential pathways to victory. That's a big number. Um, <laughs> apparently, that that's like more than the number of part of uh, like atoms in the in the universe wow. or something like that. So it's an enormously large number. Okay, so there's. So you don't have the computational power to search all that space. So if you have a problem that you can search all of the space for, then you apply an algorithm and you get a precisely correct. An algorithm is a precisely correct answer. So 33, you know, um, three times three is an algorithmic answer, right? Logic is algorithmic. Deductive logic is algorithmic, right? If the premises are true, the the conclusion must be true. true. Um, But we actually, the the vast majority of problems we face have search spaces that are too large for us to to deal with. Ill-defined problem. That's an ill-defined problem. And so almost everything we do in movement is an ill-defined problem. If you think chess is complex, you know, think about playing basketball. Yeah. Think about doing parkour or running through the forest and realize that, um, that your body has all of these redundant uh, um, redundant systems that allow you to to do the same thing, but now you have to search within those what's the optimum at any time. Mm-hmm. So this is a problem that was an, identified by a thinker, um, Nikolai Bernstein, who's a huge, huge figure, I mean, titanic figure within motor learning theory. Mm-hmm. But uh, he found that, he describes something called the degrees of freedom problem, which is essentially... You know, if you look at flexing your elbow, you have seven muscles across the elbow. Yep. You know, and then if you put the seven muscles here, plus yeah, the muscles and then you turn here, the radius and the ulna, which yeah, yeah, you 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 rapidly run into a combinatorial explosion problem. 
Um, so he identified that. So in the past, prior to him, and still many people um, think about motor learning as a as a program that's played out through your brain. Mm. Right? It's like when you're learning to shoot a basketball, it's like you're you're building you're building this pattern. Um, but how you do that in that search space is really complicated. And then he also identified something called context conditioned variability. So if if I'm in one position and my my weight is transferring at a specific speed, the same muscle activation that would result in a successful shot in a different circumstance no longer does. Right? And so my body has to have ways of searching that space that are sufficiently correct because it can never get to perfectly yeah. correct. It has to be good enough. Yeah. Yeah. So then we have, um, so the, the other side of the algorithm is the heuristic. So a heuristic is, is something that basically prejudges the search space and eliminates vast parts of it as irrelevant. So for chess, that would be something like control the center of the board versus mm -hmm. always move yes. this way. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So if you, so three heuristics from chess um, are control the center of the board, um, get your queen out early and castle your king, mm -hmm. right? So those are prejudices. Those are, those are, you've prejudged that these are going to get you to the solution. Someone who is a good chess player can recognize your prejudices, your biases, and and play a game yeah, exploit them. that ex uh, exploits yeah. them. So you 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 have this, this central problem, the very things that make you adaptable and able to, to respond to this complex world are also the things that can lead you into self-deception and illusion. Mm -hmm. That's where John Ravicki talks about bullshitting yourself. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. bullshitting yourself. And so, so in order to, to have success in life as a human being, in order to cultivate wisdom, in order to you know, avoid crises, mm -hmm. um, we have to have these systems of sort of self-cultivation, self-transcendence that allow us to become wiser, right? Mm -hmm. So for, for Verveke, intelligence isn't sort of just knowledge or ability to apply, uh, apply logic. It's the ability to recognize what is relevant. And then, or, or you could say rationale, knowledge is, um, or intelligence might be your ability to sort of solve a problem. Rationality is your, your ability to recognize the right problems to solve. Uh-huh. Yeah, because we, to a certain extent, I mean, that's what postmodernism did. Nothing matters. Yeah. There's an infinite amount of meanings that we can kind of pull out of like this thing we call life. Yeah. But there aren't an infinite amount of meanings that that's lead succeed. to the best possible outcome yeah. for everybody. Um, yeah. So what do we want to focus on? Yeah, precisely. So we have this. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's such an interesting idea. Like how do we essentially what we need is to cultivate wisdom or yep. pathways to the good. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that alone is a very difficult problem. Like what is it to, to, to do good? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's such an interesting challenge for, for us to be thinking about at the level of like movement practice. Yeah. But I, I fundamentally actually think that this is um, maybe one of the most powerful pathways that we could take to cultivating people who are able to actualize that because uh, the hero is the person who, who, who is able to proactively take action in the world. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, 
if you if you don't have developed embodied understanding of what it means to take action, to take the jump, to push through something, to deal with hardship, um, it's just not a. There's nothing that's going to make that as relevant to you as a practice that allows you to experience it in the most complete way. Yeah. Right? Dealing with like a chess game, right? You can you can be a, afraid in chess to deal with somebody. Right. It's not a physical fear in the same way as fighting somebody. Right. The same way as jumping. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. in the same way that the tree became real to us through realizing it through physical touch and through a process that allows us to change over time and interaction with that tree. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Because everything we touch becomes a part of us to a certain extent, not a yeah. part of us physically, but a part of our neural mapping of the world. Yeah. It changes the it changes you. Mm-hmm. You carry it with you. You have a richer map of reality now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so I think that when we, you know, We've, we've fallen into this Cartesian duality where we, we view the, the self as sort of contained within the mind mm-hmm. and the body is just a, a taxi that moves us around. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't to blame that necessarily on Descartes. Right. His thought was more sophisticated than, than, than that, but that's what we've sort of, that's the message that we've taken from it. Yeah, the there's the mind and then there's the flesh wagon. Yeah. Right. And... And it's really just not that simple. Your brain is continuous with the body, and the body, the brain itself evolved to control a body. Mm-hmm. And and so when we can extract these lessons of wisdom and rationality through a process that involves the body, I believe that they're going to be more deeply, um, more deeply embodied. Yeah, and will allow us to more effectively um, utilize them in the world. Mm-hmm. You know. Now I got one for you. What do you reckon happens when you die? <laughs> that's beyond my ken <laughs> i mean i i i gen, i guess that i am non-theistic i have no uh the systems of thought that i have really invested in yeah they don't seem to be able to access anything useful for that question mm-hmm. i'm not saying that those systems are in the past i would have just said that that was the sum of no, and that certainly we we're just going to rot in the ground afterwards. Okay. Um, currently, I you know I'm much more convinced by this idea that there's a whole lot of stuff that we can't know, and so I've gone from you know being a uh, I guess a, a a hardline atheist to an agnostic atheist. Where wow. you know I don't I don't believe that God exists, but I also don't believe that I could know whether that question is true. Right. And I would say that I'm almost at this point more of a non-theist in that it's not even that I disbelieve that God exists as I guess I just don't, I don't know what to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to think about the afterlife. Right. And the only reason I'm asking is because I think it does tie into the question of meaning in, yeah. in a very big way. It's not a popular question. It's yeah. kind of an unsophisticated question in many senses mm-hmm. or many circles of thought. But it's a question that, is deep yeah like what the fuck are we doing here you know and yeah and like what's life about well i, I think it is really related to what we're talking about in that yeah. sort of interesting way because it's essentially you know the, the argument we makes is we 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 went through these self-transcendent processes and realized that there was something beyond our our own experience mm. And we, one way that we conceptualized that and we built our sort of technologies of self-transcendence was through this model of two worlds. Um, 
Plato's cave, right? Yeah, yeah. There's the higher realm and then there's the shadows that are reflecting the fire of the higher realm. Yeah. And 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 what we are is that is those shadows. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, heaven and hell and this this there's this whole era, era of the Axial Revolution when all of our kind of um, major religions were founded and philosophical schools were founded. And so we've been living in this in this two worlds mythology for a very long time. And uh, in Verveke's lecture series, he basically tracks it to Thomas Aquinas, who when faced with the fact that the Christianity that had been developed over the last 1,200 years was not really congruent with the Aristotelian science. When Aristotelian science came back to Europe, yeah, he, what he did was he he tried to bring these things into coherence by splitting the world between an objective world of facts where where science worked mm-hmm. and a world of faith, right? And Credo. faith, yeah, faith was a thing that we willed, right? We had to will our belief, and so we and and what we've done. You know, even before that was essentially we have invested the sense of meaning in that higher world. And then, you know, for many of us, that that belief in the higher world has collapsed. Mm-hmm. And so what we've been trained by Neoplatonism and trained by Christianity for, you know, a, a thousand years or more. 1500 years, whatever, whenever you, you make the break. Um, the sacred is something you have to believe in. Right. And it's something that is external to the world. And so this is something that came up in our debate between, between Verveke and Peterson. So like, this is one of the key pieces of Nietzsche's thought was that we had to reclaim the body. We had to reclaim experience as sacred. Uh-huh. Yeah. And this is, uh, and so for me, my re- relationship to nature and the way that I interact with nature is where I find the sacred in my life. Uh-huh. And that it, it's sacred because it's extremely deeply meaningful to me and it affords self-transformation. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sufficient for me. Yeah. It's a non-theistic sacredness. Yeah. Which doesn't exclude a possibility of theism. No, it doesn't. Right. I mean, it's just, you know, maybe I'm, I'm it's worshiping just, Hanuman and I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Embodying Hanuman. Right? Yeah, totally. Those big leaps. Yeah. <laughs> So that's that's kind of you know my thoughts on around that area. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Well, I really enjoyed Return to the Source. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm gonna do it again for sure. Awesome. Well, um, I look forward to it. Yeah, it's an amazing experience, and uh, you know, just being invited into your 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 backyard, essentially mm-hmm. not your backyard, but your home state, well, the place yeah. you grew up. Um, you also. Sp- we're in my backyard. I was right? in your backyard as well. <laughs> but but really, the, yeah. the, the, the place you grew up, the place you spent so much time, kind of, like, there was, the landscape here is amazing. And it was very, very cool to be able to, like, yeah. participate in it. 6,000 feet up, looking at 11,000 foot peak yeah, one yeah, day. Yeah. And, you know, in glacial lakes and then swimming on beautiful, beautiful sandstone boulders around around you. It's pretty right. sweet here. Yeah, having world-renowned Rimhoff instructors, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, Helping you breathe and then yeah. going into these ice baths. Like it's it's incredible. Thank you very much. And I don't know how many of your listeners know about your dad, but like yeah. that place is incredible too. Sunray yeah. Kelly's ranch or whatever. Yeah, the Sunray Shire. <laughs> the Sunray Shire is, is it's, awesome. It's a pretty unique space. And yeah, it's it's been there is something about just not seeing straight lines, yeah, even in buildings that was just so refreshing. 
yeah. coming back into Seattle, coming back into the world of signs and letters and um, it felt a little bit of an affront, you know, because because the way he's built those buildings is just like they're just continuations of the natural surroundings. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Every year I go there, I think I get a deeper appreciation for the place. Right. Because, you know, whatever you grow up with, you kind of view as normal. Totally. Um, Not only normal, but sometimes um, abhorrent, something you want to get subnormal or non-optimal or something you want to get away from. And there's lots of technical problems with the way that my dad built as far as like, you know, we had leaks and the heating wasn't very good. Though he's gotten a lot better at that. Yeah. It's (laughs) now really good as far as heat. But, um, you know, every year I get to see it through the, the eyes of all these people yeah, and realize how it connects with my work and, and the, the, that sense of re-enchantment in a way. Yeah. Right. Uh, one of my good friends in this world, um, Dave Wardman talks a lot about re-enchanting the world. And I think that there's something about the combination of the movement of the mindfulness of the nature and of that particular space that we we teach at, you know, having people come to my father's property, that it's, it's this real deep experience of sort of re-enchantment. Yeah, you're back in Middle Earth. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it is. It's sort of like a, it's like getting to to go through the uh, Fellowship of the Rings for yourself yep. or whatever, because you're you're climbing the mountains and you're having epic adventures and you're you're doing fighting stuff and, and yeah, and, and then you get to go back to the Rivendell to, yep. to hang out them. with all the hobbits and yeah. <laughs> feast, you know. Feast. Yeah. And so we, yeah, it's just been interesting to start to realize just how uniquely special that is and how much we want to make that the center of what we're doing, how we, we spread it out. Yeah. So what's interesting too, is it kind of relates a little bit to an archetypal story of bringing life back, mm-hmm. like, you know, father culture Yeah, and pushing away from father culture and then actually returning to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and you shared something like that around the campfire, which I found very, very powerful. I don't think this yeah. is the best yeah. place for it, but <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing for me because like, you know, I think of my father's generation, especially the, the counterculture, I mean, yeah, yeah. The counterculture, you know, they were, they, they saw their culture certainly as being the parched kingdom yeah. right? and they wanted to bring something new back to it. They wanted to reimagine, bring freedom back. And um, I think they went too far. I think that they that they lost destroyed structure and meaning. Yeah, yeah. And they lost sight of so much that was of value in the culture that had preceded them. Um, and so, a lot of my journey, let's say, has been like having grown up as a hippie kid and then starting to recognizing the value of the historical Western culture. So that's like going back and reviving the bones of my father, father culture. But then there's this interesting like, recursion to that, which is like how much of the stuff that that I got from my dad and his generation yep. is actually really good. And and I've rejected too much of that and have to go back and bring that back as yeah. well. And so there's like the the, the this very global level of, of, con, of confronting our relationship with the culture that brought us into being and bringing what's good out of it. Um, and thinking about that, say, as Western culture, even, you know, we're, we're inheritors in many ways now of world culture, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we could be looking at Taoism and Buddhism as part of our, as in some sense, part of our cultural inheritance. And no matter where we come from, we actually probably have a few generations of people who have yeah. been multicultural. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, Heidegger and, yeah. and Nietzsche were influenced by, by Buddhist thought. Yep. 
So that those things are are layered into Western culture now too. But uh, but yeah, so we have that, and then we have kind of the local, which is you know what is the the, the culture of my own family, mm. and uh, I, just on the last night actually that we were talking about festivals, mm-hmm. and and I was and I, and I noticed how reactive I was up against like these things, and like how like I just wanted to dismiss you know. Burning Man, right, 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 and I was like, and I was just noticing that, like, I have a real strong desire to view those things as 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 just for their pathologies, yep, and not like as expressions of this thing that we are seeking in the very work that I do of you know community. What you know, the like Jamie Wheel and Stephen Collar talk about communitas and ecstasis and catharsis as these central states that human beings have to go to to engage in self-transcendence mm-hmm. it's like well that's what burning man is that's, that's what, what a festival is and, it, festival and it is. affords the space for self-organization and affords the space for um yeah. all sorts of um learning that doesn't occur in formal ways yeah um, there's something about you know it's they're playing with the right stuff i guess yeah there's something about those festivals that to me doesn't doesn't get there yeah and i think that something about not being oriented around practices. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's hopefully what we're really solving yeah, yeah. with events like Return to Sources. You know, we got the communitas, right? We got the ecstasis. We got the catharsis in that container. But then we had a lot more time to integrate it, a lot more time to get tight with lots of, with the specific people. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of it, we were starting to already start about how do we reintegrate this? How do we take this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's looped into practices, very specific, physical, manifest, concrete practices that people can do. Right. So what's your uh, hope for return to the source? What do you envision? What would you like to manifest and create? Yeah. Um, you know. Return just, to the source, evolving with play, your company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the next things is, you know, I want this, the, that event to be the heart of what we do. Mm-hmm. And I want to to essentially get to the point where we have a, a culture, a curated culture of amazing people, mm-hmm. you know, independent researchers and in meaning in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Who are there, at, you know, uh, four times a year. Right. Right? So we have a fall retreat and a, a winter retreat, a spring retreat, and return to the source in the summer. And we just sort of um, are able to continue the tribe engaging this process together. And then we build online courses that um, that allow people to to maintain those practices throughout the year mm-hmm. and support them in online communities. Mm-hmm. And then from the online communities, we build real communities. So we so local having, communities outside yeah, of Washington, yeah, all over the world. So we start having uh, start having coaches, not mm-hmm. just here in Washington, but all over the world. Yep. And we start having events like this that are popping up that are that are achieving the same type of effects so i'm um, already in the uk my friend ben metter yeah runs uh runs move with the seasons workshops and he runs a week-long workshop called wildwoods mm-hmm. which is in many ways similar to uh to return to the source and so if folks are in in europe and can't make it all the way over here return to the source I highly recommend that um and i'd like to see that become a thing that can happen four times a year as well mm-hmm. and can be expanded and be a week long and um and, and, and start butting off teachers who can facilitate this kind of uh, ecology of practices um, 
going forward. And, and then I guess the other aspect of that is I want to continue to be able to collaborate and to work with other teachers who Zork aligns with us and get even stronger and better um, collaboration with with Simon Thacker and John Verveke and Fighting Monkey and Dave Ordman and Mark Walsh and yeah. all these people. So that's kind of uh, the vision for where we're going. Yeah, great. Awesome, Rafe. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. It's been really well, awesome spending it. this week with you too. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.